Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 30. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've been studying the gospel narratives of the fate of Jesus of Nazareth following his crucifixion. Last time, we reviewed the burial account of Jesus, and we saw that one of the principal features of this account is the interment of Jesus in the tomb by this enigmatic figure, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Sanhedrist, a member of the council, all of whom, Mark says, condemned Jesus to death. Now before we move on to look at Mark's empty tomb account, let me ask if there are any questions or discussion of the burial account uh, remaining from last week that you would like to talk about first. Yes, uh, George over here has a comment. Uh, Bill, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, according to, I think, um, some of the accounts, he was a secret disciple of Jesus, and he dissented from the decision to, you know, deliver Jesus to be executed. And um, was Nicodemus also a member of the Sanhedrin? Uh, I think he was. So there must have been some dissent. I don't think it says that Nicodemus was a Sanhedrist. He was a Pharisee. But that doesn't necessarily mean yeah. he was a Sanhedrist as Joseph was. And you're right, George. The later Gospels, as I mentioned, make Joseph's discipleship explicit. They say he was a secret disciple. Um, I think it's Luke who says that he did not participate in the condemnation of Jesus. And many scholars would see these as later Christian attempts to whitewash Joseph of Arimathea, to Christianize him, so to speak, to baptize him and, and make him a secret Christian. Whereas in the earliest narrative in Mark, he appears simply as a delegate of the Sanhedrin uh, assigned to dispose of the corpse. But that was why I argued at some length last week that there are already indications in Mark's gospel that Joseph is not simply a, a, an impartial, disinterested delegate of the Sanhedrin assigned to get rid of these corpses in a proper way. He singles out Jesus of Nazareth for special care. He gives him a very proper burial in a tomb um, he dares to go to Pilate, uh, uh, even though he had no uh, connection to Jesus on a personal level. And so, uh, and also Mark says he's looking for the kingdom of God, which are the terms in which Mark describes the gospel preached by Jesus in Mark chapter 1. So I think that while these later gospels make explicit uh, Joseph's sympathies with Jesus, um, that they're already there, really, in Mark's account, and therefore we can't say that these are just later inventions. I, I guess it's John uh, chapter 19 where it says Nicodemus uh, brought the uh, spices yes. to anoint the body as if he was working with Joseph. Yes. And Nicodemus is another one of these very peculiar figures who only appears in John 3, when he visits Jesus by night, and you know you have the famous discussion about spiritual rebirth, and then all of a sudden he pops up here again at the burial 
to help Joseph of Arimathea and brings this king's ransom in spices um, to bury Jesus, indicating again this enormous respect and worth that he would see in Jesus that he would give so extravagant uh, a burial. But this is not mentioned anywhere else in the gospel accounts. This is only in John. Uh, Bill, I had a question. Oh. Yes. Where? Over here. Ah, yes, James. Okay. Um, I had a question, though, about the actual burial, though. Um, and I understand the resurrection. Maybe you've, you've got a you've got a whole lot of evidence for it. But um, f- from a skeptic standpoint, though, um, I mean, you, first off, you do have the body being turned over to somewhat of a mystery man. and But secondly, um, they didn't um, post a guard at the tomb until the following day, Saturday. Yes. So there was no guard that night. And another thing, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but Nicodemus, if he would have been a Pharisee, what would he... Why would he have been handling a dead body on the Sabbath? I mean, right, right at sundown yeah. on Friday. That, I, can, can you explain those? Um, okay, there's a number of questions there. First, I want to emphasize that in our discussion, we are not attempting to assess the historical credibility of these oh. stories. We'll do that later on. Okay. This is just a survey, a review of what does the Bible say about the resurrection of Jesus. So we're simply trying to unfold or um, exposit, as it were, these narratives about the fate of Jesus of Nazareth without making any assessment as to their historical credibility. But James's point is so interesting. In Matthew, the guard is sort of an afterthought. It isn't there until Saturday morning. It wasn't posted Friday night. So if this were just an apologetic legend that had been invented by Matthew, why does he have the guard posted on Saturday? The body might have already been stolen, uh, the tomb resealed, um, and it doesn't say they looked inside to see if there was any corpse in it. It could have been empty when the guard was set. By contrast, if you look at the so-called Gospel of Peter, which is an apocryphal gospel from the second half of the second century after Christ. Here, the Roman guard, it's explicitly identified as Roman, it is set on Friday. This is a fail-safe apologetic. The guard is, is already there on Friday, and the tomb is surrounded by not only the guard, but a big crowd of Pharisees and people from the surrounding countryside. That's the way an apologetic legend looks. But the very fact, as you say, that Matthew's guard story isn't airtight, I think lends more credibility to Matthew's account because that's not the way uh, a later apologetic legend would portray it. Uh, Now, as for Nicodemus, um, we shouldn't, and I'm going to make this comment actually in the lesson today, we shouldn't think that Joseph himself climbed the ladder and pulled the nails out of the the hands or wrists of Jesus and took the body down from the cross. A rich man like Joseph or Nicodemus would doubtless have servants to assist them in the process. And so it may be that uh, Nicodemus and Joseph didn't actually handle the corpse themselves so that they could be clean and eat the Passover um, 
Uh, they may have had servants do this. We just don't know. Or it could have been that their overwhelming respect and admiration for Jesus simply overwhelmed their scruples about cleanliness. We, we don't know. Yes, Dr. Bob? Uh, Matthew twenty-seven sixty says that this was Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb. Yes. So that argues that maybe this was a little more than just a duty that he was more than what? More than just a duty that he was fulfilling. Yes, and, and everybody admits that in the later Gospels, Bob, like Matthew and Luke, there Joseph is portrayed as a secret Christian. He lays the body in his own tomb, which is new and unused. And, and as I say, many critical scholars will say these are later legendary attempts to... Uh, whitewash Joseph of Arimathea, look, make him look like a Christian, he gives his own personal tomb, and so forth. So that, that would fit in with what they're saying. What you would need to do if you're defending the historicity of these narratives is to show that already in the earliest account there would be reason to think that these details are accurate uh, and not later inventions. So, for example, Joseph couldn't just lay this condemned criminal's body in any tomb that he happened to find in the area because it would defile anybody else that was in, in the tomb. So it's highly likely that it was his own personal tomb because it would only be if it was his personal tomb that he would have the ability to lay the corpse of this condemned criminal in the tomb, and for the same reason, it also makes the detail very likely that it was a new tomb that had never been used, because then none of other Joseph's other family members would be defiled by laying the body of this condemned criminal. So I think you can see in the approach that I'm taking that already in Mark, we have the clues that the later gospel writers make explicit and would suggest that they're reliable in doing so and not uh, creating legends. There are no uh, manuscripts of Matthew that exclude that, and later manuscripts include it, indicating that a definite deception had been attempted. So there's no. No, no, this would have to be, according to these critics, would have to be something that took place in the evolution of the tradition between Mark and Matthew. Now, that raises the question, doesn't it, of the date of Matthew. If Luke, as I'm persuaded, was written prior to the AD 60s, prior to the death of Paul, because Paul is still alive at the end of the book of Acts, right? He's under house arrest in Rome. So it's, I think, very probable Acts was written prior to uh, the AD 60s, in which case Luke, being the first half of the book of Acts, it's a double work, Luke would have been written then sometime in the late or mid AD 50s. And if Luke used Matthew, as some scholars think, uh, that would make Matthew then even earlier. And you're pushing right back very close to the date of the Gospel of Mark, which could be around the AD 40s, something like that. And that closes that window during which these legendary influences are supposed to have evolved these details. It makes it more credible, as I say, to think that they're simply making explicit what 
they knew to be the case, namely that this was Joseph's own personal tomb and that it was new and unused. But again, we're getting into historicity questions there, which are important, but right now we're simply reviewing what do the stories say. Bobby? Um, so a question on the language or the, the writing that mentions Joseph of Arimathea asking Pilate for the body. Yes. Is, so historically with that, is that proper for Pilate to have ownership of the body and for, for Joseph to, he would have... Yes, as, as a Roman is crucifixion, that? this is under Pilate's right. authority. You see, the Sanhedrin at that time lacked the authority to carry out capital punishment. If there was a crime deserving of death, the Sanhedrin could condemn the man, but they couldn't carry out capital punishment. They needed the Romans, the secular government, to do that. Well, the Romans would never execute Jesus for blasphemy of Yahweh for the condemnation that he received at the hands of the Sanhedrin. Therefore, his claims had to be represented before Rome as committing a crime that the secular government would recognize, not blasphemy. Rather, his claims to be the king of the Jews, the Messiah, could be represented to Pilate as an offense against Rome. He's claiming to be Caesar. He's claiming to be the king, um, not Caesar. And in John, you have this explicit where the crowd yells to Pilate, uh, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. And it is that motivation that makes Pilate then condemn Jesus and send him to the cross. So Jesus is condemned on the one hand by a religious court, but then to be actually executed, he has to be condemned by the Roman court, and he's condemned by them for treason against Rome. I guess my question would be if, uh, if it wasn't Joseph asking for our permission to, to receive the body, who, what would have been, you think, a normal practice at that point? What would have happened? Well, Pilate was generally very accommodating with Jewish sensibilities that time. He had locked horns with the Jewish chief priests before and had nearly caused a riot. This is in Josephus. And so it would keep the peace if Pilate would tend to accede to their demands or requests and, and do what they want. And so even though um, Jesus was a, a Roman criminal and executed under Roman authority, if a member of the Sanhedrin came to Pilate and said, let me dispatch the corpse, I'll take care of its burial, he would be willing to go along with that. And that would be especially, I think, true if he believed that the man was innocent, as the Gospels portray that he'd been unjustly executed. Yes, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, do you think Joseph's tomb is the one described in Mishnah Sanhedrin 6 verse 5 of the two burial locations set aside by the Sanhedrin? Um, as I recall, the, in the Mishnah, the burial plots for the criminals that are mentioned there are one for criminals who have been beheaded, I think, and then the other one is for those who have been burned, I, I believe. Yeah. And those would not be what we're talking about here. This would be, if the later gospel writers are correct, this would be 
a tomb that belonged personally to Joseph of Arimathea and was not an official, an official criminal's tomb. Now, those who think that Joseph was not a Christian disciple, that he was just an impersonal delegate of the Sanhedrin, will say that this may have been a criminal's tomb in which he laid the corpse. And they would deny these other details that we've talked about and, and uh, claim that this is just a, a common criminal's tomb that was close enough to the execution site um, for the burial to, to take place there within the three hours between Jesus' death at 3 in the afternoon and the breaking of the Sabbath at 6 p.m. Terribly interesting, isn't it? I, uh, these, these details I find just fascinating. Yes, Steve. Over here, this, Steve. Just following up on the, I think they took everybody down because before the Sabbath, and that was why they were going to break the legs. Oh, and yeah, so yeah. They, they couldn't had to allow the bodies to remain on the cross overnight or it would defile the land. Um, but it's, it's so interesting that in Mark, Joseph singles out Jesus. He doesn't request, so far as we know, the bodies of the others. He may have been content to say to the, to the Romans, you take care of them, you bury them, but I want Jesus of Nazareth's corpse. Yeah, I think he was a believer. All right. What follows next in Mark is the account of the discovery of the empty tomb. Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. Let's read that account together. Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone was rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." Notice that the women are said to visit the tomb uh, in order to anoint the body. What is this all about? Some scholars have speculated that Joseph was only able to carry out an incomplete burial of the corpse of Jesus. That during the three hours that he had between 3 p.m. when Jesus died and 6 p.m. when Sabbath would be uh, breaking, uh, Joseph could only give him a hurried and rushed burial, and therefore the women were coming on Sunday morning to complete the burial of Jesus. It seems to me, however, that this is an ungrounded speculation. There's nothing in the burial narrative to suggest that this was a hurried burial. Uh, it would be a relatively simple burial. 
uh, Joseph would doubtless have servants uh, to assist him who would have taken the body down from the cross. They could have purchased the linen sheet uh, well in advance uh, since they knew that Jesus was going to die soon. Uh, and then the body would probably need to be washed, uh, as was typical. The wrists would be bound, the ankles would be bound, a jawband placed around the head, and then the whole thing wrapped up in a sheet and packed with dry spices like sandalwood to offset the stench of decay, placed on the shelf in the tomb, and the stone rolled over the tomb. Uh, and it's um, not improbable that such a thing could take place within three hours if the tomb, in fact, were close to the spot of the crucifixion. In fact, it's very interesting to compare this time factor to the burial of Ananias in Acts chapter six, 5, verses 6 and 7. Acts 5, verses 6 and 7. Ananias is struck down. This was not expected. There was no anticipation here. And yet it says in verse 6, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And poor Sapphira is struck dead as well. Here you have a three-hour time slot mentioned during which the burial of Ananias is able to be completed and the uh, young men return to the place where the Christians are, are meeting together. So I think that it's not at all improbable that uh, the body uh, could have been washed, uh, though if you believe the Shroud of Turin is authentic, it appears the body was not washed, uh, but was simply then uh, tied, wrapped up uh, and with the dry spices, and then placed in the tomb, and the tomb uh, shut with a stone. The women are not coming to the tomb to complete an unfinished job. Rather, what they are doing is carrying out the typical ministrations to the corpse that grieving relatives or friends of the deceased would carry out. For three days after a person was placed in the tomb, visitors could come and they would bring aromatic oils that could then be poured over the corpse as a sign of their devotion uh, and their grief to the deceased person. And this is evidently what the women are engaged in, these typical Jewish grieving processes. Um, and they uh, come to the tomb wondering, how in the world are we going to get the stone moved? Uh, because it would be far too large and heavy for them to move themselves. But I think their devotion to Jesus, as well as their hope of finding some men who would do this for them, uh, drove them to try to carry out these final uh, devotions to Jesus. Now, when they arrive at the tomb in Mark's gospel, they find what Mark describes as a young man who is sitting in the tomb on the right-hand side of where the corpse would have been laid. Undoubtedly, I think, Mark intends this young man to be an angel. He doesn't call him an angel. Uh, he calls him a young man. But the young man is dressed in a white robe, which is typical for angels. The white robe, I think, is a clear tip-off that we're de dealing here with an angelic figure. 
Moreover, you find the proclamation of the resurrection in the mouth of the angel. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And then he foretells the appearances in Galilee. So I think it's very clear that Mark intends this figure to be an angelic figure, which is sitting uh, in the tomb and proclaims to the women the meaning of the tomb, namely that Jesus is risen from the dead. And it's noteworthy that the, the very earliest interpreters of Mark's gospel also took this figure to be an angelic figure, namely Matthew and Luke. Uh, they understood this to be an angel and call this person an angel. Now Mark's gospel, as we have it today at least, ends with verse 8, with the women fleeing from the tomb. Uh, there may have been a lost ending to Mark. This is highly debated among scholars, whether or not Mark went on to relate a resurrection appearance, such as you have in Matthew's gospel, when they go to Galilee, just as the angel tells them to do, and they see Jesus. But if this is the end of the gospel in verse 8, it's very clear that Mark knows of resurrection appearances in Galilee even if he doesn't narrate one. Why? Because the angel says to the women, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. So very clearly, Mark knows of resurrection appearances, at least one anyway, of Jesus to the disciples and perhaps a wider group that included the women uh, in Galilee, even if he does not choose to narrate these appearances. Now, verse 8 has caused a great deal of discussion among scholars. Uh, the women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Some uh, scholars have suggested that this meant that the women never told anybody about the empty tomb. They, they just went home and they never told anybody that they had visited the tomb and found it empty. And that's why the fact of the empty tomb remained unknown for so long until finally this legend would be mentioned in Mark's gospel. Well, I think you would agree that this is a pretty preposterous uh, suggestion, that the women would never tell anybody ever that they had been to the tomb and found it empty uh, that day, even though that tomb would have still existed and been public knowledge that, that it, it was empty. The women never said anything. I, it seems preposterous. This is just too clever by half. I think it's very clear that what Mark means is that they didn't say anything to anybody as they ran to tell the disciples in fulfillment of the angel's command to go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before them into Galilee. Trembling and astonishment are very typical Markan reactions to the presence of the divine. Um, and so their silence as they run to tell the disciples uh, would fit right in with Mark's um, theology uh, of the overwhelming and terrifying prospect of an encounter with a divine person like this angel. It's interesting to compare what the women do with Mark chapter 1, verses 43 and 44, where Jesus gives a command to someone that he has cured of leprosy. 
uh, look at Mark chapter 1, verses 43 and 44. Jesus says to the man, he sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to the people. Now here Jesus gives him exactly the same command, say nothing to anyone, but what he means is on the way to go tell the priest, say nothing to anyone, but then he tells him go to the priest and offer the sacrifice that you're supposed to. So it's not meant to be an enduring sort of silence, it's, it's a silence as you go to carry out the mission that you have been given to in one case go to the priest, in the other case to go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before them into Galilee. Finally, another interesting aspect of the empty tomb narrative that does not appear in Mark but does appear in two of the later Gospels is the inspection of the empty tomb by some of the disciples after receiving the women's report. This is mentioned in two Gospels, John and Luke. Let's look first at John chapter 20, um, verses 2 to 10. John chapter 20, verses 2 to 10. And this is about Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb and finding it empty. And then verse 2 says, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter then came out with the other disciple, and they went toward the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying, and the napkin which had been on his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So here Peter and the so-called beloved disciple, who's later identified as the author of the Gospel of John, upon hearing Mary's report, run to the tomb and verify that, in fact, the tomb is empty. Now, intriguingly, this is also mentioned very obliquely in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, in the narrative of the appearance to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Remember, there are a couple of disciples leaving Jerusalem, um, going back to their town of Emmaus, and Jesus encounters them on the way. And he asks them what's been going on, uh, and they're, they're amazed that he doesn't know anything about this. And then in Luke 24, verses 22 to 24, these Emmaus disciples say to Jesus, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him 
they did not see. So here again, you have a reference to a plurality of disciples who, upon hearing the women's report, went to the tomb to inspect it and verify that, in fact, the body was empty. So we have in John and Luke's gospel uh, this very interesting story of the inspection of the tomb, the verification of the women's report, by two disciples uh, at least, and they are identified as Peter and the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John. Any discussion or comments about the empty tomb narrative? Bob? And then Ben. Bill, it's very interesting in the account that you just read, the first few verses of John 20. The yes. three Greek verbs for saw or seeing that are used. John, being the younger man, got there first. So in verse 5, it says he looked in, he observed, and the Greek word is blepo. I, excuse my pronunciation, I don't know. Yes, that's right. Anyway, it means just simply to have light impinged on your retina, and you see, you observe. Okay, understanding is secondary. Verse 6, Peter looks in. Oh, and John instantly just bent. He just peeked in, didn't go in all the way. Then Peter got there. He looked in in verse 6, and the, the Greek word is theorio, which means to behold and consider. Be kind of interesting as to uh -huh. what's going on. Then in verse 8, John gets up enough courage and has thought about it long enough. He goes in and actually goes into the tomb, and the Greek word there is Horeo, which means Horao. to discern, see clearly, and to understand. So, this indicates that the stone was rolled back, not to let Jesus out, we know ah. that, but to let others in so that someone can look in there and have a reasonable assumption that, hey, a miracle by the disposition of the grave clothes, a miracle has occurred. Now, one way would be if he were wrapped with strips. In John, earlier in the end of 19, it says uh, his account is he was wrapped with strips of linen. The other ones did not use strips. So, And also, myrrh can be a shellac-like substance. Some people have said if you wrap strips around a body with myrrh, you're going to have a hardened cocoon. Now, <laughs> now, you said last week the argument against that is that actually, even though the Israelites were in Egypt and they learned about embalming, there's no evidence that they did it. And also, <laughs> if you wrapped with strips like that, uh, without embalming, you'd have gaseous problems, which, which would, so that's one argument against it. The other argument against that is also the, uh, what I believe to be a plausible uh, explanation for the Shroud of Turin is a burst of radiant energy. Yes. Uh, and that would argue the cocoon thing, that would be, you, we would probably see that on the, on, the, uh, on the Shroud of Turin if that were the case. However, Something happened. We wouldn't have to have that. We wouldn't have to have a, a hardened cocoon. It was something about the disposition of those grave clothes that someone said, wow, a miracle has occurred. There's no way that body could have been gotten out of here and those clothes look the way they did. And that can account for perhaps many believers, you know, come in that tomb. You know people came by and looked in there. And that could account for the number yeah. of believers. Yeah, I, I do not think that we should think of Jewish burial practices as being being these sort of cocoons involving mummies. The 
plurality of the linen strips that you're referring to are probably the strips that are used to tie the wrists and the ankles, uh, and then the band around the jaw to keep it from falling open. Um, so that we shouldn't think that in John's mind he's imagining a, a mummy that's being uh, wrapped up. Given that they didn't embalm the bodies, the corpse would explode and uh, be destroyed. So probably what we're thinking of here, it says that he saw the linen cloths lying and the napkin which had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. This was probably a sort of jawband that went around the head and it could have been twisted like you twist a, a towel and then tie it at the top, and, and they see this loop lying off by itself next to the, the shroud. And no grave robber is going to bother to untie the body and carry it off, limbs flopping, uh, and leaving the grave clothes behind in the tomb. So I think that this is what um, caused John uh, to believe, as you say, they didn't know the scripture, but it was the presence of seeing these grave clothes that made John think, yes, he's, he's risen from the dead. Uh, I assume the women who went to the tomb didn't know the measures that had been taken so that the body couldn't be stolen. So if the resurrection had not happened, they would have been met with the Roman guard as well as an official Roman seal that could not possibly be broken, right? So there's no way they would have been able to get into well, the let, tomb. Let's, I'll, I'll let you continue to speak, Ben, but let, let, let's remember, as already indicated, if Matthew's guard is historical, it wasn't set Friday evening when the women observed the burial. Mark right. says they, they were at the cross, they were at the burial, they saw how the body was laid, and then they came the next morning early. Saturday morning? Or, or not Saturday, I'm sorry, then they came on Sunday morning. When the right. Sabbath was passed, uh, then they came on early Sunday morning. And if there was a Roman guard there, as Matthew says, they wouldn't have been aware of it. I think you're quite right. They would have rested on the Sabbath. They wouldn't have known of the presence of this guard. Right, right. So if the resurrection had not happened, there would have still been a seal over the tomb and a Roman guard there Sunday morning when they showed up. Right. Okay. Right. Right. So they, and, and what we have to say, I think, from Mark's empty tomb story is that if the Matthean guard story is historical, that the guard had already fled. Right and gone back to the chief priest by the time the women arrived. Right. So that when the women and Mark arrive, they don't see the guard. The guard rattled and shaken by seeing the angel and the stone rolling back had already fled. And, and so in Mark's gospel, you don't have it mentioned. And they so it's not impossible to harmonize these accounts. Sure, sure. No, no, that makes sense. And, but this would have prevented them from being able to do what would have been normal. Like going and putting the Roman guard and the seal over the tomb, that was the Romans and the, I guess, the Jewish people who, the Sanhedrin who wanted that done, prevented these women from being able to do what would have been normal. To Probably, yes. Okay, Charmaine. I'm curious about Mark 16, verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Yes. Is that because... <laughs> Is that because he denied Jesus and Mark wanted to be able to 
confirm the fact that he had been restored, or what is your opinion of there that? There are a number of interpretations of Peter's being singled out there, and I think at the end of the day, we, we don't know for sure. Some have said, is this indicative of, of an appearance to Peter, that there was a special appearance of Jesus to Peter in Galilee that he would see? And that's why he says, tell Peter and the disciples, there you will see him. Or as you say, could this be a reflection of Peter's having betrayed Jesus and denied him? And this is Jesus' reaffirmation of Peter that he will see the risen Lord. Or, and I think this is very plausible, this could just be frankly a reflection of Peter's leadership in the New Testament church. By the time this was written, Peter was the chief apostle, a leader in the Jerusalem church, and so he's singled out here for attention as being uh, someone to whom Jesus was promising this resurrection appearance. So any of those, I think, would be plausible, and we can't be sure of, of which is correct, I think. Steve, and this will be our last one. So we think that Mark, a lot of his information came from Peter. Is that right? Yes, that, that is the tradition. Papias and other very, very early sub-apostolic fathers, the church fathers that knew the apostles, uh, attribute the Gospel of Mark to uh, Mark, who was uh, a tra co-traveler with Peter and served as his interpreter. So, so that would make it really bizarre that he ended the story with the women and nothing about Peter having come to the tomb, right? Right. I, it, it, it would seem ridiculous to say that if he's aware of the belief in the resurrection in the early church that Mark would pretend that this was a, a permanent silence. I, I find this just far too clever by half. It's it just utterly implausible to think that Mark was intending this to be a permanent silence. All right, well, let's close with a, a word of prayer, and next time we'll turn then to a discussion of the postmortem appearances of Jesus in the gospel traditions. And now may the Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven and seated above all authority and power at the right hand of the Father, equip you with everything good to do what is pleasing in his sight and his will until we meet again. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.